Boston Chat Radio, designed just for you. Good evening and welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your host for the next hour of informative mental health-related news. Anything about the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, how to make sense of media reports about the latest research into the causes and potential new treatments for mental illness. This is where you'll hear about it first, without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, and along the way, trying to better inform the general public about mental health issues, as well as reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric diagnosis and needing treatment, all that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources and with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. And uh, just want to mention this was pre-recorded to be aired first on May the 6th, 2015. Uh, and hope that you've been feeling well. We're going to start out tonight's show by talking about the placebo effect. Now, this is very important in psychiatry, uh, especially when it comes to psychiatric medications. Uh, Of course, you probably know what the placebo effect is. That is uh, the fact that even an inert treatment... And that could be medication, it could be something non-chemical or non-physical. Any type of treatment that actually has no tangible benefit will work, will bring about the desired effect, just for the fact that the person getting the treatment believes strongly enough that the treatment will work. And again, this could be a medicine, a sugar pill, as it were, as the classic example is, but it needn't be a pill or a tablet or a capsule. Um, Any sort of treatment that uh, is meant to bring about a certain effect but isn't conducted in the normal or so-called real way can be a placebo. For example, there are placebo trials of ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, believe it or not, There are also placebo trials of acupuncture. But in any case, this placebo effect is a very important thing in mental health, and especially in mental health research. By the way, I should mention, this can work in reverse. That's right, the reverse placebo effect. In other words, if someone is so extremely skeptical Uh, They can literally disbelieve in something powerfully enough. Then what that means for that person is that an otherwise effective treatment would not bring about the desired beneficial effects. So it cuts both ways. Now the big implication the placebo effect has in psychiatric research is, uh, of course, we need more treatments for mental illness, right? We have about a dozen or more treatments uh, that are medications to use for anxiety and depression, but they don't work for everybody who takes them. 
and they have a lot of side effects. In fact, in one large study of the effects of treating depression in the community, somewhere between half and two-thirds of people who were being treated with medication for depression didn't respond to the first medication they were given. A half to two-thirds. So it's a big problem. We need to continue to find better medications to treat depression and other psychiatric problems, despite the fact that we have a lot of options now. And for better or for worse, when you do research on a drug that you think may help one of these illnesses, you have to demonstrate that it's significantly better than an inert placebo, according to very specific statistical models. And this is how you prove to the world, and in the United States, most importantly to the Food and Drug Administration, who approves medications, that your medication is effective because it's significantly better than a placebo. But if the placebo effect is so strong in psychiatric drug trials because people have a very powerful hope and belief that this pill that they're taking is going to help their mood improve, and uh, typically that engenders a very high placebo effect, then it becomes very difficult to conduct a psychiatric drug trial in uh, an appropriate and fair manner uh, because you're always going to get this very high placebo effect. It's going to be hard for the real, so-called real medication to overcome that and you're not going to get a uh, positive result for the drug that you think may help. All this means that if we could learn more about the phenomenon of the placebo effect itself, and somehow minimize the negative impact that it has on psychiatric drug trials in terms of skewing the results uh, such that it would make an otherwise effective treatment look bad, that would be a huge, huge benefit. In recent years, the development of new psychiatric drugs has seriously stagnated for this very reason. Uh, the way the Food and Drug Administration wants psychiatric drug trials conducted sets the bar very high such that it makes it very difficult for a prospective new drug to overcome the placebo effect and prove that it's effective. So really it would, it would be a tremendous benefit to learn how to better deal with this in psychiatric medication research. In fact, if you recall, several years ago, there was quite a controversy. Uh, some people came out and said, look, you know, the psychiatric medications really don't do any better than placebo, uh, and you might not as well take any of them at all. Well, clearly that <clears throat> was an exaggeration, um, but it's an indication that uh, th this is a terrible problem, that you have a high placebo effect in psychiatric drug trials, a high hurdle for a prospective new drug to get over. All right, so let's look now at this latest research onto the placebo effect. 
Fascinatingly, some researchers have discovered that the tendency to have a placebo effect from a treatment may be in someone's genes. That's right. You could have a genetic predisposition to have a placebo effect. And if this could be screened out, you would then have much better, more dependable, and more reliable research subjects uh, with which to test out treatments and not have the problem of a big placebo effect. Now, some people, according to this research, may be genetically programmed to feel better after taking placebo pills, while others may only heal with real medications. And this is according to a new review of existing research. The study team looked at evidence that some people's genes may make them more prone to experience the placebo effect. If true, and a genetic profile of such placebo responders, as they are called, because again, they report a beneficial effect from an otherwise inert, ineffective treatment, it might change the way medications are prescribed, and as I was talking about before, the way that clinical trials to test out new medications are designed. These findings strongly support the idea that genetic signatures for placebo responses exist, but the findings are preliminary. They come to us from Harvard Medical School and Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Something is definitely there, but more needs to be known. The research was published in the journal Trends in Molecular Biology. Researchers note that past research suggests people's response to placebos may be influenced by the way certain signaling molecules in the brain and the body respond to pain and reward or the expectation of those experiences. Among the important signaling systems identified are those involved in responses to opiate drugs. Uh, these are things like painkillers. These are narcotic painkillers, uh, Percocet, Oxycontin, Oxycodone, Hydrocodone, etc. <clears throat> and other drugs related to mood, um, such as those that manipulate chemicals like serotonin and dopamine, which uh, we know that would include many antidepressants and also stimulants. Differences between people in how these systems function can be linked to variations in their genes. Now, they are still in the early stages of using genetic screening for the placebo response in clinical trials, and as our knowledge of personalized medicine evolves, it makes sense that we also consider how the placebo effect fits into treatment response. Evidence that the placebo effect is real was first publicized in 1978 after an experiment done on patients having molar teeth extracted found that some people experienced pain relief with a placebo pill instead 
of a narcotic painkiller. More recently, researchers looked at the gene COMT, which regulates the amount of dopamine in the brain and is connected to feelings of both pain and pleasure. So you can see from that it makes total sense that this gene would be involved in having a placebo effect or not. Now, <clears throat> we'll take a commercial break at this juncture, and when we come back, we'll go over the design of the experiment the researchers used to obtain their findings, and we'll have much more other mental health-related news. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back with you after this break. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. Elena George with your health tip of the day. Did you know that sleep is an important weapon against infection? Sleep is important because it is restorative. During sleep, known as REM, the body recuperates and resets. For example, the immune system increases its activity and stress hormones drop. There is a correlation between sleep deprivation and frequent colds. The average adult should get 7 to 8 hours of uninterrupted sleep per night, and a child needs more since they are growing. Sleep hygiene is important to set a good foundation. Techniques to promote good quality restorative sleep include going to bed at the same time at night, avoiding alcohol or caffeine prior to bedtime, avoiding exercise in the evening, reading to a young child at bedtime, avoidance of drinking fluids late in the evening, and avoidance of taking decongestants at bedtime. If you are having problems sleeping more than once a week, you should see a doctor for further evaluation. Please join me Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for Medicine on Call. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay. We're talking about research showing that there is a genetic tendency to have the placebo effect from an otherwise inert, ineffective treatment. Now, let's talk some about how researchers figured this out. In one experiment, researchers offered three types of placebo treatment to patients with irritable bowel syndrome. This is a 
gastrointestinal disorder where there are recurring bouts of uh, severe both constipation and diarrhea and uh, other than anxiety and stress there's really no specific cause for it now patients were either put on a waiting list for treatment given fake acupuncture by an unfriendly provider no less I wonder how they assured that the provider would be unfriendly in the experiment or given fake acupuncture by an affectionate provider <clears throat> also begs the question just how affectionate was that acupuncture provider anyway they then tested patients to see which version of this COMT gene they had again this is the gene that helps regulate the amount of dopamine in the brain uh, dopamine is a chemical in the brain that relates to feelings of both pain and pleasure <clears throat> they <clears throat> now people with a high dopamine variant of the COMT or COMT gene were the ones most likely to report that the fake treatment had actually relieved their pain. Now, while the work is intriguing, finding a few correlations between gene mutations and placebo responses to specific drugs does not in and of itself nail down the genetic basis of the placebo response. Another unanswered question is whether the genetic traits that drive the placebo response to one drug are the same as would drive the placebo response to another drug. They could be entirely different. There are also ethical challenges in using a potential genetic profile to prescribe treatments. It might make sense for physicians to do genetic testing before prescribing some drugs but there's a question of what might happen if patients refuse this screening. The study authors also raise the possibility that changing the gold standard of clinical trials for new medicines, currently done with one group receiving placebo and another group getting the experimental drug, to add an extra group that receives no treatment. This might help measure the magnitude of any placebo response and help to better gauge the effectiveness of the drug. I personally think that would be a wonderful way to reform how clinical trials for new medicines are conducted and it might improve the chances that those trials would be successful and that researchers could come up with medications that would be helpful and effective for at least some people who take them. Most people tend to think first and foremost of a placebo not evoking a biological response but a psychological response. If there is indeed a biological element to a placebo response, and it seems very clear that there is, and you can actually find a genetic basis for it, you would absolutely be causing a revolution in clinical trial design. Even if it gets more accurate trial results 
to include that an extra group which receives no treatment. It might be difficult to get people to volunteer for this type of experiment. Americans are completely unwilling to believe that doing nothing is better than doing something. Well, <clears throat> you may have a point, but I think that with some creativity, researchers could uh, build in some incentives to get people to participate. Uh, for example, and this is, you know, the article doesn't mention this, this is just my own speculation. Perhaps one way to get people to volunteer for the study is that, okay, well, in the first phase, you might be on the, you know, no treatment condition, but then uh, we'll rotate the patients, and then you might wind up either on drug or placebo after that. So, admittedly not a huge incentive to participate but more so than just saying, well, you're going to be in this study, but you're not going to get any treatment at all. That, uh, that certainly doesn't sound much of an incentive, does it? All right, well, very interesting stuff. Uh, again, since we're lacking more effective treatments in psychiatry and drug development has really lagged the last several years, uh, this could be game-changing. So <clears throat> more on this as... Uh, as I hear and read more about it. Next up on Psychiatry Today. Alzheimer's disease is something a lot of people are justifiably very worried about as the baby boomer generation is aging. This is going to become a huge public health problem. We have very little, if any, in the way of effective treatments whatsoever. And so any clues at all in terms of how this disease can be combated are very important. And here is a study that finds a link between the immune system and Alzheimer's disease. And the researchers who discovered this are saying it potentially could be groundbreaking in the fight against Alzheimer's disease. Well, Let's take a closer look. Now, the immune system may play a part in Alzheimer's disease. Researchers in the U.S. discovered in a breakthrough that could lead to the development of new treatments for Alzheimer's disease, which is the most common form of dementia. A Duke University study published in the Journal of Neuroscience reported on researchers' findings that certain immune system cells, which normally protect the brain, began to consume a key nutrient, arginine. In tests on mice, researchers were able to block the process with a small molecule drug to prevent brain plaques and memory loss. The study found that while the exact role of immune system cells was unclear, the research could point to a new potential cause of Alzheimer's while eventually opening a door to a new treatment strategy. If indeed arginine consumption is so important to the disease process, maybe we could block it and reverse the disease according to Carol Colton, professor of neurology 
at the Duke University School of Medicine, senior author of the study. She says, we see this study opening the doors to thinking about Alzheimer's in a completely different way, to break the stalemate of ideas in Alzheimer's disease. Research into the brains of Alzheimer's sufferers has typically focused on two hallmarks, plaques and tangles. Plaques are a buildup of sticky proteins known as beta amyloid, while tangles are a twisted protein called tau. By studying a type of mouse created several years ago with a similar type of immune system to a human, researchers found that immune cells called microglia began to divide and change early in the onset of Alzheimer's disease. Using a drug called difluoromethylornithine or DFMO before the onset of symptoms, scientists were able to block damage caused by arginase, an enzyme which breaks down arginine. All of this suggests that if you can block this local process of amino acid deprivation, then you can protect the mouse, at least, from Alzheimer's disease. And then, obviously, researchers would have to determine whether this would also work in humans. But again, they did develop this mouse model of Alzheimer's, uh, specifically with mimicking how Alzheimer's looks and works in the human brain. So this is very promising. Um, I think it's potentially groundbreaking if it will pan out and go further, especially in human studies. But to label it groundbreaking at the moment, I think, is premature. But um, it is at least positive and hopeful that new approaches are being studied and developed uh, because <clears throat> up until now, pharmaceutical companies and researchers have been focusing on coming up with drugs to break up or prevent the formation of these proteins that make up the plaques. And that approach either hasn't worked or the results have been marginal uh, at best. So we definitely do need different and better approaches. Next up on psychiatry today, children of depressed mothers are at risk for behavior problems. Now this article caught my eye because regular and long-time listeners to this podcast will know that I often talk about controversial issues of pregnant women and nursing women taking antidepressants, thus uh, exposing their unborn fetus or a newborn child to antidepressant medications, which of course you cannot say is safe, uh, but there is a lot of controversy about whether and how they are harmful. What's not been very controversial at all is that untreated maternal depression is very harmful to the unborn child or the newborn. And so this article talking about 
the effects of maternal depression on children and causing behavior problems, I think, is important to discuss in the context of more and more women having children while taking antidepressant medications, yet being pressured to get off of them. We'll get started talking about that article after our next commercial break. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Could an app be the answer to a better garden? Absolutely. It's the new free app, Homegrown with Bonnie Plants. Note, track, and photograph your garden's progress. Personalize your weather and reminders. Get variety info, grow guides, hands-free dictation, and more. The Homegrown with Bonnie Plants app, the sharpest tool in your garden. Download it free on the App Store. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because I believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individualized. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing or your child has frequent throat infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual, not an ailment. During your visit, you'll not be rushed, and all of your questions will be answered. And when possible, I will recommend natural treatments to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. Dr. Scott Bay here with you, your host for all the latest mental health-related news and your psychiatrist on America's Web Radio. We are talking about how children are more likely to develop behavioral or emotional problems if their mothers are chronically depressed even if symptoms aren't severe. This according to a recent French study. Now, while previous research has linked clinical depression in mothers to mood disorders and other health problems in their children, the current study is among the first to make this connection even when mothers have milder symptoms that might not be diagnosed or treated by clinicians. There is a large group of mothers with depressive symptoms that are not severe enough to lead to a diagnosis and who probably do not even seek help from their health care providers, but that do have a negative impact on their children's emotional and behavioral well-being. Researchers followed more than 1,100 mother-child pairs in France from pregnancy through the children's fifth birthdays, periodically assessing maternal mental health as well as emotional and behavioral development of the kids. Researchers questioned the children at age five to assess emotional symptoms, conduct problems, signs of 
hyperactivity or inattention, problems with peer relationships, and social behavior. In addition, researchers gave mothers questionnaires to measure depression symptoms during pregnancy and the first year of parenthood, as well as when the children were three and five years old. 62% of the mothers experienced no signs of depression during the study period, almost two-thirds, that's a good thing, and 4.6% had chronic severe depression. <clears throat> that's about at the low end of the incidence of depression in the general population. About one in four had persistent moderate depressive symptoms, for some women, severe depression happened for a shorter period of time, with 3.6% of mothers experiencing this only during pregnancy, and 4.6% only when children were preschoolers. Children whose mothers experiencing this only during pregnancy, and 4.6% only when children were preschoolers, and children whose mothers were depressed only during their preschool years had the greatest level of behavioral and emotional problems, while kids whose mothers were only depressed during pregnancy didn't have any difficulties in these areas. That's an interesting distinction. Again, the greatest level of problems in the kids were if mothers were only depressed during preschool years. Whereas if the mothers were only depressed during pregnancy, the kids did not have behavioral and emotional problems in their preschool years. So women with chronic depression, whether moderate or more severe, had kids with some emotional or behavioral issues. These results add to a growing body of research linking maternal depression to developmental problems in their children. Generally, though, children are more at risk when families have other problems, such as financial hardship or marital stress. The heightened risk experienced by preschoolers in the study suggests that the timing of maternal depression also plays a role in child development. During preschool, Children's increasing independence, but less than optimal self-control, can make it especially challenging for mothers or any caregivers to set limits, grant autonomy, and resolve conflicts. If mothers are depressed, they might find themselves too exhausted or emotionally taxed to engage in the kind of vigorous parenting that preschoolers tend to need. While many women may experience what's commonly called baby blues for a few weeks after giving birth as they adjust to life with a new infant, symptoms that don't go away or that keep women from caring for their babies or engaging in normal activities might be depression, specifically depression with postpartum onset. Medication or therapy may help ease symptoms of depression, but mothers might also need help learning new ways of interacting with their children. 
Depression can affect parent-child interactions, which in turn may be one way that maternal depression affects children. Because we know that children of mothers who are depressed are at higher risk of behavioral and emotional problems, they may need treatment as well. Well, I think this is again more evidence that whether you argue about what type of treatment, uh, therapy only, which of course um, you would have to say is safer as opposed to giving a pregnant woman medication which exposes the fetus to medication or giving uh, a mother of a newborn who is nursing medication which again exposes the uh, newborn child to medication. Uh, clearly treatment is needed and warranted to prevent children of depressed mothers from having negative consequences. And uh, while the article doesn't make this point, in my opinion, uh, if a woman is suffering from depression and therapy alone is ineffective, then she should not be deprived of medication just uh, because she is pregnant or nursing. Uh, <clears throat> again, the negative impact of maternal depression on the child, be it the unborn fetus or the newborn, has to be taken into account, not simply uh, the potential impact of the medication. All right, well now let's look at a study that gives us more information about the impact of peer abuse or bullying. Uh, this study confirms what we pretty much already know, that bullying adversely affects children in later life, more so than even child abuse per se. Uh, this according to new research from the University of Warwick, a new study published in the journal The Lancet Psychiatry shows that children who have been bullied by peers suffer worse in the longer term than those who have been maltreated by adults. There is already an established link between maltreatment by adults and the mental health consequences for children. Researchers wanted to examine whether long-term mental health issues among victims of bullying were related to having been maltreated by adults as well. They looked at data from 4,026 participants in the UK ALSPAC study that stands for Avon Longitudinal Study of Parents and Children and 1,273 participants from the United States Great Smoky Mountain study and for the ALSPAC they looked at reports of maltreatment between the ages of 8 weeks and 8.6 years, bullying at ages 8, 10, and 13, and examined mental health outcomes at age 18. <clears throat> and then when it came to data from the Great Smoky Mountain study there were reports of maltreatment and bullying between the ages of 9 and 16 
and then mental health outcomes between the ages of 19 to 25. The mental health outcomes that they were looking for included things like anxiety, depression, or suicidal tendencies. Results showed those who were bullied were more likely to suffer from mental health problems than those who were maltreated. Now, being both bullied and maltreated also increased the risk of overall mental health problems, anxiety, and depression in both groups. In the ALSPAC study, 8.5% of children reported maltreatment only, 29.7% reported bullying only, and 7% reported both. In the Great Smoky Mountain study, 15% reported maltreatment, 16.3% reported bullying, and 9.8% reported both. Being bullied is not a harmless rite of passage or an inevitable part of growing up. As we've already known for quite some time, and as this study further demonstrates, bullying has serious long-term consequences and is very important for schools, health services, and other agencies to work together to reduce bullying and the adverse effects related to it. And it starts with parents. It starts in the home. It starts with showing how you treat others and avoid any semblance of bullying oneself that would model this for your children, whether it's actual physical bullying or just verbal or emotional or cyber bullying. Uh, if you avoid this yourself, if you decry it when you see it in others and you try to intervene or stop it when you see others doing it, that sends a very powerful message and it will help reduce the incidence of this type of behavior in kids, uh, which we know can cause very serious long-term damage. All right, well, we're going to take another commercial break here. When we come back, I'll have some tips on how to avoid common ways in which anxiety gets you into a trap and how to avoid them. And we'll have other mental health-related news besides that. You are listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back after this break. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one, can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George from Peachtree Ear, Nose, and Throat Center. Do you have problems with sinus pain and pressure? 
Do other people smell things that you don't? Have you lost the joy in eating because food just doesn't taste like it used to? Is your nose always stuffy no matter what you do? Maybe you have sinus or nasal polyps, a chronic sinus infection, or allergies that are either undertreated or have never been treated at all. At Peachtree ENT Center, we use state-of-the-art equipment so you can see the problem. You'll be a partner in your care, and together we will decide the course of treatment because we believe in old-fashioned medicine where we take the time to fix the problem, not just medicate the symptoms. We specialize in minimally invasive balloon dilation sinus surgery, correction of a nasal septal deviation, and turbinate reduction surgery that can be done in the office, getting you back to work the next day. And you can rest assured that all options will be discussed before surgery is recommended because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. If you'd like to make an appointment, call 404-591-9100 or reach us on the web at www.peachtreeentcenter.com. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health related news. Now, here's an article that describes three common anxiety traps and how to avoid them. So, for those of you who suffer from a lot of anxiety, perhaps. You'll hear yourself described in this article, and perhaps you'll pick up some useful tips to combat your anxiety. If you're an anxious person, you've probably been told your whole life not to worry so much, to stop overthinking things and just relax. By now, you've perhaps given up on trying to feel better and resigned yourself to the idea that there's just something wrong with you, or at the very least that this simple-minded advice people give you indicates they don't understand uh, the problems you have with anxiety. But neither is true. It's good that we have some people who hold on and other people who are cautious. It creates a normal bell curve with different types of people on either end. In other words, there's a spectrum of how anxious people are, some people very calm and laid back, some people are very anxious and hesitant, and some people are just plain reckless. The problem is when anxiety gets to the point that it's paralyzing. Think of these bottlenecks as anxiety traps. The process of climbing out of these traps is fine-tuning your mind. You're learning how to work with your own hardware and software in the most effective way. So here is some advice on how to escape from three of the most common anxiety traps. The first one is that you hesitate to act until you're 100% ready. How many of you do that? Well, a large part of anxiety is having an intolerance of uncertainty. It involves a fear of failure and can keep you mired in contemplation mode. You may have a tendency to consider many ideas without ever trying any of them. Or you may find yourself perpetually stuck in the research phase of projects. So how do you free yourself from this trap? Well, anxiety-prone people tend to focus on the worst possible outcomes. 
so they worry too much about the risk to take action. But the truth is, there's usually a spectrum of possibilities. Identify the worst thing that could happen, the best thing, and the most realistic thing, and do it in that order. The idea is to help yourself acknowledge the opportunities that exist along with the risks so you feel safer when making a move. Another trick is to make a plan for how you'd cope if the worst case scenario came true. Warriors are always thinking, what if? But they never actually answer that question. Rather than constantly trying to avoid the negative outcomes, make an action plan. This can boost your perception of yourself as someone who can handle adversity when it strikes, which can be calming. I agree with that advice. There's something very empowering and, yes, reassuring and calming about already thinking through the worst possible outcome of an action that you're going to take or a decision you're going to make or something like that, thinking through uh, what you would do in that scenario, and then at that point, the worst possible outcome is no longer threatening, and it makes it easier to take a risk and make a decision uh, if you're not so worried about the worst possible outcome happening and how you might deal with it. Another anxiety-related trap is that you obsess about mistakes. Overthinking past missteps, meaning you're replaying them again and again in your mind, is called ruminating, and it can leave you tangled up in knots. So the way to free yourself from this anxiety trap? Sometimes a good way to escape the cycle is to come up with concrete steps for moving forward. Start, uh, start, <clears throat> excuse me, start by jotting down three possible actions you can take now. For example, if you've recently hired a new employee who isn't working out, rather than beat yourself up over missing holes in his resume or other signs, define your options. One, you could give him less responsibility. Two, you could provide him more guidance. Or three, you could fire him. Making the list shifts your mind into a more productive mode and gets you out of this trap of obsessing about past mistakes. And a third anxiety trap is you dread criticism. Anxious people often go out of their way to avoid feedback because they already judge themselves so harshly, so criticism from the outside is especially upsetting. Plus, you may know that you'll be replaying the critique in your mind for days and weeks to come, and that makes it even harder. So the way to free yourself from this anxiety trap? Try... Not that it's easy, but try acting relaxed when you get a review. Even though you may feel crushed or defensive, send physical signals that you're appreciative. Drop your shoulders. Lift your head. 
relax your hands. This isn't just an act. Your feelings and thoughts will quickly catch up with your nonverbal cues. Now it sounds strange, but that is very true. Other researchers found that when you uh, adopt a posture that's more relaxed, it will actually translate into your feeling that way. It also may help to have some canned responses prepared in case you need to stall. For example, you could say, let me think about how best to proceed from here. I'll email you with some thoughts. That will buy you some time to mentally process the information and respond in a productive way. And by doing those things, you're going to make the experience of having had to receive negative feedback less stressful. Well, there you go. I actually think that was some good advice. So hopefully those of you who suffer from uh, those anxiety traps found that helpful. Next up on tonight's show is the rare and obscure disorder known as Rapid Eye Movement Sleep Behavior Disorder or REM Sleep Behavior Disorder or RBD. Now, not many people suffer from this and so a lot of you may never have heard of it, but those of you out there who do suffer from it or know someone who does, um, this is something important to mention, so even though it's not a topic of widespread interest, when I saw this article that found that there's an association between REM sleep behavior disorder and Parkinson's disease, I thought this is definitely important to mention. So this rare sleep disorder in which people act out their dreams may be an early warning sign of Parkinson's disease, a potentially deadly neurological illness according to a new review of previous research. About half of people who have this REM sleep behavior disorder will go on to develop Parkinson's disease or a related disorder within a decade of being diagnosed with RBD. Eventually, everyone with RBD will ultimately develop a neurological disorder, or nearly everyone. If you get this disorder and live long enough, you'll almost certainly get Parkinson's disease or a condition similar to it. It's an early warning sign. Now, this research was published April 13 in the journal JAMA Neurology, Journal of the American Medical Association Neurology. So the main symptom of RBD is moving around during the rapid eye movement period of sleep when most dreaming occurs, and the muscles are usually paralyzed by the brainstem. People with RBD are thought to have a brainstem malfunction that allows them to move during REM sleep and thus act out their dreams. People with RBD describe having vivid dreams and their enactments range from small hand movements to violent actions such as punching, kicking, or leaping out of bed. So obviously, this disorder poses a risk of injury to the patient or their bed partner. It was first described in the 1980s and is distinct from sleepwalking. It only affects about half a percent of the population, or 35 million people worldwide. To find out whether RBD was in fact an early signs of Parkinson's disease and similar brain disorders, researchers looked through 500 studies or more. They found that between 81 and 90 percent of patients with RBD 
developed a degenerative brain disorder during their lifetime. Parkinson's disease is caused by the breakdown of certain proteins called alpha-synuclein proteins in brain cells in the brain that produce dopamine, a chemical that is involved in regulation of movement. It could be that RBD results from the early stages of this alpha-synuclein breakdown in the brain, so it could be a useful warning sign of Parkinson's. Not everyone who develops Parkinson's will have RBD first. The findings could help doctors find a way to treat Parkinson's while it's still in its early stages. Now, RBD is not curable, but it can be treated with high doses of the sleep aid melatonin or low doses of the anti-anxiety drug clonazepam. Patients with RBD should also take steps to prevent possible sources of injury. It's important to make the bedroom environment as safe as possible by removing objects that can be picked up or used as a weapon, such as guns. Parkinson's disease is not curable either, but it can be managed with drugs. In addition, an experimental therapy known as deep brain stimulation has shown promise in some patients. Bottom line is, if you or someone close to you is having this very strange, vivid dreams and acting out violent actions, such as punching, kick, kicking, or leaping out of bed, uh, risking injury to yourself or your bed partner, it would be a good idea to have a sleep study, a consultation with a neurologist who specializes in sleep disorders, and be checked out for REM sleep behavior disorder. That is going to wrap it up for tonight's show. I hope you enjoyed the information that I enjoyed bringing to you and found it informative, and I hope that until we get together next week, you have a wonderful, stress-free week. But if not, then you need to call Dr. Scott. Good night, and thanks for listening. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.